0: Get iXL now, and listeners can get an exclusive 20% off iXL membership when they sign up today at iXL.com audio. Visit iXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price.
1: Hey listeners, Brittany here to tell you a bit about today's sponsor of Undistracted, MailChimp. Running a small business or a startup is not easy, y'all, especially when you're trying to get the word out about your products in today's hectic digital world. I mean, (laughs) our scrolls are packed. Thankfully, MailChimp wants to see you succeed, and with their smart marketing platform, you can focus on that. The platform can help you turn insights into results, scale your marketing, and let your brand shine through an AI-powered creative assistant. Later in the episode, you'll hear from a small business owner who will give their best tips and tricks for running a business. In the meantime, you can learn more by visiting MailChimp.com smartmarketing. That's MailChimp.com slash smartmarketing. Hey, y'all. Brittany. We had a fascinating show all packaged up for you, locked and ready to release. And you are still going to hear it. But first, two things happened on Wednesday, the day before our show airs, that made me want to hop back on the mic. Wednesday night, after a number of Russian cyber attacks on Ukrainian government websites, CNN and NPR correspondents, reported hearing explosions in multiple Ukrainian cities, including the capital, Kiev. We talk a lot about domestic issues on this podcast, and frankly, it took even me a long time to understand what was happening out there, but being part of a global community means caring beyond our borders. Dr. King's vision for a beloved community is one in which I deeply believe an end to systemic racism an end to the violence of poverty, and an end to the destruction of militarism. Whatever the cause, war hurts the most vulnerable. So I'm not praying just for Ukraine, but also for an end to the suffering of the everyday people who'll be harmed the most. And also, Wednesday morning, Governor Greg Abbott of Texas issued a public directive to the state's Department of Family and Protective Services. That all teachers, parents, and caregivers of trans children be investigated for abuse. Look here, Greg. Get the hell away from our children. And I'm calling you by your first name because you and your bigotry get no respect from me. It amazes me that supposed small government conservatives have no problem expanding their power to reach into the lives of oppressed people simply for existing. Healthcare for trans children is not abuse. It is gender affirming care that affirms lives. And loving your children for who they are is the greatest form of parenting there is. That should never be a crime. And we should all be disgusted when they criminalize humanity, all of us. If you can, consider donating to Trans Texas and Equality Texas, two organizations leading the fight on the ground. And raise the alarm by amplifying trans lawyers, leaders, and children to your networks and platforms. None of us are free until all of us are free. We are undistracted. The show today, Okoto Afori Ata and Sarah Lomax Reese. I'll be talking to these two founders about the new wave of black and female led news organizations.
2: We need to repair the relationships between black communities and credible media sources. What are your interests? What are you worried
1: about? What are your curiosities? What challenges do you face? That's coming up first, it's your untrending news. First up, a jury in the trial of the three men who murdered Ahmad Arbery have convicted them of hate crimes. The killers had already been found guilty of murder by a state court. The hate crime charges were filed by the US Department of Justice. The federal trial proceeded because Ahmad's family had objected to a plea deal. The family pushed for a trial instead because they wanted the evidence of the defendant's bigotry to be made public. Now y'all, I always say verdicts like these aren't justice. A living Ahmad Arbery is. The very least Ahmad's family is owed is accountability. On Monday, Colombia's constitutional court ruled to decriminalize abortion. Previously, abortion was only legal there in three cases. If the pregnancy endangered the parent's life, if it was a product of sexual assault, or if the fetus was fatally deformed. Now, someone may seek an abortion for any reason in the first 24 weeks of pregnancy. This is big because every year, hundreds of people in Colombia were investigated for what the government saw as abortion-related crimes. The decision follows a trend in Latin American countries, with Argentina's move to legalize in December 2020 and Mexico's decriminalization in September 2021, setting a beautiful, powerful precedent. Y'all, political victories are the gifts organizers give to all of us. And Colombian activists have been fighting years for this. This is y'all's victory, and you deserve all your flowers. Also, U.S. government, y'all know this is making you look wild, right? To quote one Portia Williams of Housewives fame, y'all are going down the wrong road, wrong road. Abortion bans disproportionately affect marginalized people, and that should be enough for us to straighten up and fly right to. This week, the U.S. National Women's Soccer Team won a $24 million settlement in their equal pay lawsuit. Here's Megan Rapinoe speaking about it on The Today Show.
0: As always, there's really no justice going backwards. Um, The only justice really now is ensuring that this never happens again. And this lawsuit is a massive step forward. So for us, this is just a huge win in ensuring that... You know, we not only right the wrongs of the past, but set the next generation up for something that we could only have dreamed of.
1: Now, the U.S. women's national team will vote on the settlement as part of their next contract negotiation with the U.S. Soccer Federation. And if they agree to it, the players will receive $22 million in back pay and another $2 million will be placed into a fund to support players' post-soccer careers and to fund charitable efforts to encourage women and girls to get into the sport. Now this is less than the $66 million in back pay they were fighting for, but it does set up more equal footing. Get it? Footing? You see what I did there. It sets up more equal footing going forward. Now, some of y'all are all over the internet talking about how we shouldn't care about rich people getting richer. And uh, I get it. But sometimes it takes folks with the privilege and the platform waging the fight to break open the space for everyone else too. This is a blueprint if we choose to use it. For the legal precedent it provides us, for the collective bargaining model it gives us, and for the example of tenacity and community that has driven this fight home. When we operate like that, we can win. And as we wrap up our Olympics coverage, I have another piece of, yes, good news. Alana Myers-Taylor has become the most decorated Black athlete in Winter Olympics history. Last week, Myers-Taylor, a bobsledder, won her second medal in this Olympics and her fifth over her entire career after winning silver in the two-woman bobsled this past weekend. Especially impressive considering she started her Olympics in COVID isolation after testing positive and being sidelined during the opening ceremonies. Here's Myers-Taylor speaking about her journey. This has been an incredible Olympics. You know, starting out in isolation, I had no idea what was possible. Um, But fortunately, I had a great team behind me. It just goes to show you that even when the cards are stacked against you, if you have the right support behind you, you can still achieve great things. Any day that Black girls are winning is a good day indeed. And finally, this week, runners in New York City's Chinatown honored Christina Yuna Lee by running a mile for every year of her life, 35 miles around her block. Christina was murdered earlier in February by a man who followed her and forced his way into her home. This attack hasn't been deemed a racially motivated hate crime, but the reality is violence doesn't have to fit into a nice, tidy category to cause fear and deep, deep grief. Since 2020, the U.S. has seen a rise in anti-Asian violence, which has disproportionately affected Asian and Asian American women, according to a 2021 study from Stop AAPI Hate. So we wanted to make space here to honor those grieving Christina and the many others who have faced violence, sending love to you all and standing in solidarity. Coming up, I'll be talking to Okota Oforiata and Sarah Lomax-Reese about disinformation in the Black community and how to hold media organizations to a higher standard right after this short break. And now you'll hear from a featured entrepreneur from the Undistracted Spotlight brought to you by our sponsor, Mailchimp.
2: Hi, I'm Jazzy McGilbert. Founder and owner of Reparations Club, a concept bookshop and creative space based in Los Angeles, California. Growing up, I was a creative, introverted kid, and I found comfort in reading diverse stories. Rep Club was created to feel like a home with a beautifully curated collection of books. As an entrepreneur, I took the risk to follow my intuition and build a company the way I want with the help of our community. This became especially important in 2020 when we decided to push through the pandemic, hand delivering books across the city. Our whole community rallied behind us, and as a result, we're still here and thriving. You can order books and more from us online and find out about events at rep.club.
1: Thanks, Jazzy. Our sponsor MailChimp offers an all-in-one marketing platform built with growing business in mind. Visit MailChimp.com slash smartmarketing to learn more on how to fuel your business, even if you're just starting out. And we are back. So back in 1827, John Wilk, Peter Williams Jr., John Russman, and Samuel Cornish, they all founded Freedom's Journal, the country's first Black newspaper. In this very first issue, they wrote, Too long have others spoken for us. Too long has the public been deceived by misrepresentations. Y'all, in this age of disinfo and lily white newsrooms, they could have written that today. Today. Back then, newspapers in the South were depicting Black people as inferior at best and so often inhuman. Someone had to step up and tell the truth. Freedom's Journal published reporting and opinion pieces about enslavement, about the proposal to resettle free Black people in Liberia, about the Haitian Revolution. It ran birth and death and marriage announcements. It published poetry and lectures and probably the first piece of fiction ever published by a Black American author. Freedom's Journal inspired an entire industry in the U.S. The Black press grew throughout the Civil War, and by 1890, there was an Afro-American Press Association. By the 1940s, there were some 250 Black newspapers. But like clockwork, as soon as we do our own thing, some colonizers always come sniffing, and by the Civil Rights era, the Black press gets treated like like something of a farm league for quote-unquote mainstream newspapers. A lot of the best talent would get recruited to cover Black issues at white papers, still often relegating those issues and their reporters to the sidelines. In the last few years, Black journalists and organizations like the National Association of Black Journalists have been blowing the whistle on why so many news outlets and, yes, social media platforms have just let racism proliferate on their watch. My guests today think we can do better, probably because they're out there doing it. Okoto Aforiata and Sarah Lomax Reese are both trying to sort through the noise and create a new vision of what Black and Brown Press can look like. Okoto is a co founder, along with Lauren Williams, of Capital B, a Black led nonprofit, local, and national news organization. Sarah has been a media entrepreneur serving Black communities for almost 30 years. Along with S. Mitra Kalita, she's created URL Media, which is a network for Black and Brown media outlets to increase their audience reach and build sustainable organizations. She's also the CEO of WURD Radio in Philadelphia, one of the few Black-owned talk radio stations in the entire nation. Okoto, Sarah, thank you so much for having this conversation with us. I'm really looking forward to this. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Mm-hmm. So there's a common thread in both of your stories as founders. You both had conversations with your co-founders what is now almost two summers ago, the summer of 2020, the summer of our great discontent, the (laughs) summer, some say, of our reckoning. We'll see how much of a reckoning it is and continues to be as time marches on. But in that moment, you decide to found Capital B and URL Media, respectively. Sarah, I'd love to start with you. Take us back to those conversations. What issues were you thinking about in that moment? What came up for you?
3: Sure. So I have been kind of a Black media entrepreneur my entire career. So in addition to URL, I also have been running WURD Radio, a Black talk radio station that my family has owned since 2002. I've been running it since 2010. And so I know deeply the challenges of being an independent, Black-owned media organization. And so when the racial justice protests were happening in 2020, you know, Mitra, Khalida and I, my co-founder for URL, we had really respected each other's work deeply. And when all of the the protests and and a lot of people were starting to leave their media jobs in 2020, because everybody was realizing that the media was complicit. Mm. And so Mitra, who was working at CNN at the time, I, again, was this independent media entrepreneur, we started talking and we felt like there were so many black and brown owned media organizations that already existed that were doing the work like mm. WURD. I've at this for a long time. And so we said, what if we were, instead of creating something new, what if we looked at high performing organizations that are BIPOC owned and, and led that are already out there doing the work what if we were able to create a network of these organizations who struggle? It's not because we're not innovating or innovators. It's that we don't have the resources. We don't have the capital. And so we said, you know, what if we all came together to share content, to amplify each other's content, and to share revenue so that we could, instead of being always on life support, we could actually be centers of innovation? Mitra was like, yes. And so you know, it's just been on and popping ever since. So it's been great,
1: Akota. What was that that moment when you were like, "Yeah, we got to go in a different direction."
2: June 2020 has become such shorthand for many people about like all oh, that was ah, wrong. Yeah, <laughs> we were all going through something. For me, it really started with COVID and just being sort of nervous about the numbers that were coming up about how it was affecting black people disproportionately Mm -hmm. that made me really concerned and also just really made me want to stretch my journalistic muscles. I should say that at the time I was working at the trace, which is a single issue nonprofit news organization covering gun violence, another issue that deeply affects (laughs) black Americans and black communities. That's right. However, you know, when you're at a single issue site, you can only cover a single issue. So I'm looking at COVID. I'm like, "Uh," and then of course, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor happens, the alleged reckoning in journalism and other industries are happening. And I just really became consumed, concerned, really worried that a lot of the industry just didn't have what it was going to take to, like, you know, meet this moment with the journalism that we really needed. Yeah. And so I texted my friend Lauren, who was at the time SVP and editor in chief. At Vox. At Vox. And the text was not a productive text, y'all. I was having a bad day at work. <laughs> I've sent a few of those in my life. Yeah. Yeah. You know, get a little spicy in the group chat. So um, she responded with something much more productive <laughs> and said, you know, what if we really thought about building a, the kind of newsroom that we wanted to have when we first started out? Lauren and I met at The Root about 10 years ago and at the Digital Black Publication. Um, we worked really, really hard there, but came up against a lot of the challenges, much of what Sarah is talking about. And so we decided, okay, now's the time. And if not now, then when? And 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 we just went with it.
1: You know what I find interesting? Both of you approached this for these clearly sincere reasons, and you sent the bad signal and found other people who wanted to join you, right? So you both have co-founders who are also women of color, Lauren, Williams, Mitra. They also both have worked at a variety of places, but came directly from primarily white-run environments, right? You talked about CNN, you talked about Vox. How does this combination, do you think, Sarah, of you all's experiences in Black-run media outlets and white-run media outlets inform your perspective and direction now?
3: I'll be really candid. I'm super surprised and grateful and happy that our partnership has been as you know, calm and and seamless and productive as it has. Because, you know, when you go into business with someone, you don't really know who they are until you're in it. It's, <laughs> it's almost like getting married. You know, a lot of times you don't know who your partner is until maybe you have kids or you like come up against some stuff. And then you see who they are.
1: You say, who is this person I'm with? Who is yeah. this person? Right. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but we... We're so aligned in some very fundamental things and it's borne out in really wonderful ways because we continue to like, just have deep, deep respect for each other. I think that's probably the most important thing. We've been really simpatico. We were very clear that we wanted this to be a for-profit entity. Mm. And the reason we wanted to be for-profit for me has always been about economic empowerment, closing the racial wealth gap creating wealth for Black and brown people, especially Black people for me, because we have been so locked out and left out in the economic equation mm-hmm. for 400 plus years. Media can be a wealth creator. We haven't seen it a lot lately, but there is a possibility for it to be a wealth creator and a job creator and you know, an engine that can be empowering for Black and brown people.
1: Can be, of course, being the operative word, right? Some people are getting... Hundred million dollar checks cut for podcasts, but that's beside the point. Woo. Yeah, Akota, I'm curious your thoughts.
2: It's funny. Sarah, we? Lauren and I have known each other for ten or eleven years. We have a really deep friendship, but our friendship that started in a newsroom, right? And so, like our our friendship is sort of forged in journalism. And so, one of the very first conversations we had was like, "Should we do this? Can we do this? And should we, should we do this together?" And we pretty quickly realized that, like. Of all of the hesitations we might have had, doing it together just wasn't one of them. To answer your question about, you know, what I think we brought from non-exclusively Black-led newsrooms is, one, you get to see the different ways capital flows in mainstream newsrooms, that it doesn't always flow in Black news organizations. And also you get a real keen sense of the fact that, you know, when you're working in a mainstream news organization, even when you're writing about black issues, things that are, that black people are facing, you're doing it for white audiences and it's being edited for white audiences and it's being mm. distributed to white audiences. And so,
0: you know, I don't know if I'd
2: have been able to like describe the nagging feeling I would have when we would like <laughs> do reporting on things that matter to black people, but it always left me like, you know, this is good, but like who needs to see this <laughs> and, and how are they going to access it and engage with it? It isn't accessible to them. And And so that's one of the things that Laura and I were really serious about, just thinking a lot about how we are going to be so deeply, explicitly Black in who we serve. And that is just true of of every Black serving news organization, I think.
3: Like Mitra coming from this big, white, well-resourced organization like CNN um, and us coming together. I think the big difference is I have always been managing scarcity Mm -hmm. as running a Black media organization, It was not until 2020 when people were like, oh, right, I guess, you know, not just Black Lives Matter, but maybe we ought to write some checks to Black people too. Mm. And so that only started happening, honest to God, in 2020. I started a media organization in 1992. It was a Black Health magazine. We were hanging on by our fingernails (laughs) the entire 10 years I published that. We were hanging on by our fingernails with Word for you know, the 10 years that I was running that. And then 2020 happens and people start actually writing checks. Mm-hmm. But the difference, Mitra was coming from this well-resourced, big media organization where they're used to managing abundance. The sky's the limit. And so it's equally complimentary because sometimes I'm like, oh, we can't ask for all that money because I'm so used to asking for. (laughs) Yeah. The bottom of the barrel. Yeah. Right. She's thinking like way bigger because that's the world she came from.
1: Yeah. 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 But this conversation about resources is so interesting to me because you're right. There was this boon in 2020 where suddenly everybody was cutting all the checks that they should have been cutting for years. And even though giving to Black folks might be trendy, we know Black people are not a trend. <laughs> so you all are out here telling the stories and serving the audiences that so often get missed over but always deserve to be fully served. I'm curious, what kinds of stories are you telling today? And, and how are you making sure they're being told from the right perspectives and that they're they're meeting the right audiences? Akocha, you spoke earlier about making sure that you were intentional about not just the stories you're telling, but how you are communicating to the audience that you intentionally seek. I'd love to to hear a bit more about that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that if you are a Black news consumer reading an important report that is relevant to Black people, but have often sort of come away feeling like something was missing, that feeling is where Capital B lives and wants to serve people. So, you know, for example, one of the first pieces that we did was on the false promise of the black police chief, right? Mm. And so I had read a lot about the boon and hiring of black police chiefs uh since George Floyd. And I think 25 of the 50 largest police departments now have a black chief at the helm. But there are real limits to what they can do and what they've been able to accomplish. Truly. And there are limits to representation. And those are the kinds of conversations that, you know, not every large newsroom can, it's not even a story that we even see <laughs> as, an, as a story that is worth telling. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, really want to dig in and have those kinds of conversations that go a level deeper and, and, and are likely things that you wouldn't find at other places.
3: I love that. It's so true. We have a Black woman police chief in Philly, mm-hmm. and we were out there protesting because there was this whole, like, Facebook debacle where all these Philly police officers were on Facebook, you know, using racist language and dog and black people. And so our people got out there, we like called for protests and we were like, we need a black woman police chief. And we got ourselves a black woman police chief, but the police union, they have such a grip on the police department. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's kind of really constricted, but anyway, I love that story.
2: You know, it's like on one end, there are many black police chiefs. We say this in the piece that are not hired for the right reasons. Right. Right. Um, and then they have these expectations that they can never meet. Um, but then on the other side, you have some Black police chiefs who are overseeing a lot of the, excuse my language, all of the shit that happens, right? Deploying harsher than necessary tactics on the ground. And so like often the prevailing solutions that mainstream sort of holds onto are not really solutions that always work for us.
1: And if we're smart about it, we can map that story and that question of, what the limits of representation are, for example, onto a lot of different conversations, right? We can map that onto this Supreme Court nominee, right? Mm-hmm. Because there, it's one thing to nominate a Black woman. It's another thing to nominate a progressive Black woman. We can map that onto the upcoming midterms because there are a whole lot of folks who are running saying, I will represent you. And the question is, how and how fiercely will you represent not just my identity, but my interests, right? All of these questions matter. And if we don't have the kinds of newsrooms and media organizations that ensure those stories are being told and heard. What are we doing? Mm. I want to get into a slightly stickier conversation. (laughs) So, you know, I'm thinking back to this study that UT Austin did in 2020 that found that Black Americans, we trust journalists in general. But when it comes to trusting journalists to cover our communities, we do not trust journalists. I'm especially thinking about that study in the context of this story that went viral last week um, in a way that was contextless and incorrect, where we saw these massive headlines that said Joe Biden to give $30 million worth of crap pipes to the Black community. Uh. We even saw some Black outlets on social media and legacy media run with what it turned out pretty clearly was a right-wing talking point. But we saw this Headline proliferate. And so I'm I'm curious your take. How do we find the solution to something like what happened last week? Oh Jesus.
2: Um <laughs> yeah, I I saw that um and was very stressed out about it. <laughs> stressed out about it for a couple of reasons. One, because as you mentioned, it's a right-wing talking point, but two, seeing some quite large, large. social native mm-hmm. platforms that quite frankly are. In many cases, the heartbeat of like how social conversations move with a lot of black audiences online, adopt that really got me thinking about our disinformation problem. And part of our mission at Capital B is to, in part, to over time push back against this wave of misinformation that sort of enraptures or takes hold in our social feeds, in our online and digital lives. I do think it is the job of I think it's everyone, if you are in journalism, you're called, particularly now, to really be judicious about what we publish and how we publish. Mm, mm -hmm. It's everyone's job, right? I think that for Capital B, we know it's not a short-term game. We know it's a long-term game. And the way that we think about this is that we need to repair the relationships between Black communities and credible media sources. And the way that we do that is to ensure that we're delivering... Value to them. So many newsrooms just sort of come up with ideas and publish on their own. And a lot of that stuff is really important and really necessary, but we need to have surefire ways to know that the work that we're doing is something that Black people can see as valuable and use in their lives, right? Mm -hmm. So the way that we're doing that is in our local newsrooms, every local newsroom has a community engagement editor who's tasked with just building the relationship between the newsroom and the community. What are your interests? What are you worried about? What are your curiosities? What challenges do you face? Bring that back to the newsroom and it helps all that information is going to help us shape our editorial priorities and then put it back out there, right? And so we're hearing directly from the people we're trying to serve that this is what I need. We're going to do our best to give them that. And over time, we think the bet that we're making is that you can see the power of journalism in your life, whether we are answering a a basic question about a service you need to understand in your community or illuminating an important thing that you need to know more broadly, and you start to be less persuaded by unverified truth and information.
3: You know, we as Black people have been taken advantage of. I mean, we are so ripe for disinformation. That's the real challenge. Mm -hmm. There is incredible noise. And, you know, whether it's 24-hour news, social media, I mean, we are being inundated and saturated with stuff all the time. Yeah. And you marry that with an education system that does not teach critical thinking, mm. that does not equip our young people and other people, older people, with the ability to say, wait a minute, the government is giving out crack pipes? That doesn't even sound right.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. Let me go dig.
3: But we have been, one, under assault for so long as Black people that for many of us, It's not beyond the realm of possibility that something that destructive could be happening to black people because we've got historical memory of really egregious, overt things being enacted upon us. So, you know, Word, my radio station is it's a talk radio station. There's lots of interactivity. And we don't screen our calls. So people be calling up and they say all kinds of stuff.
1: Right. It's microchips and the vaccines. Yeah.
3: Right. As media organizations, as news organizations, we have to be as equipped and as nimble and have as much kind of reinforcements to combat that when you're dealing specifically with an injured community that has been taken advantage of by the government, by all kinds of forces. So it's difficult and it's complex. And you have to serve it up in a way where you're not shutting people down so they like feel right like they're not being heard or they're being made fun of or anything like that. You know, you've right. got to be able to serve it up in a way that people will actually hear you, which is a whole other thing.
1: You know, we've got marginalized groups of people who've actually been injured by legacy institutions, by government. And then we've got a crop of primarily white audiences that feel they have been injured by this thing they called mainstream media, right? So we decided to leave Spotify, our podcast did, a couple of weeks ago. I posted about it on Instagram. And pretty predictably, there were some Joe Rogan fans who came on and said, well, it's people like you who are upset that Joe Rogan is taking on the mainstream media, and I'm sitting there scratching my head because Joe Rogan has 11 million listeners per episode. Is that not mainstream media? Why? How are you telling me you don't trust mainstream media, but you listen to that show? I- I'm confused, frankly, by the entire idea of mainstream media because I don't know that those words mean what I thought they meant anymore. Is it time to, like, retire this entire idea of mainstream media? Help us make sense out of this, Akoto. That's a really excellent question.
2: And it's a term that I've been using to basically delineate like what we're doing on our side and what's happening on the other side. Right. I think that still holds true. I mean, I think that is certainly true of Joe Rogan. I don't know. I don't think that Joe Rogan is thinking of any of us on this call when he's thinking about making his <laughs> making his podcast. <laughs> um, I think they're thinking about dominant culture. And I think that in that way, the term mainstream is useful. But I do agree with you that like, the way that it's deployed quite often by the right wing is just like news organizations that are established, that are legacy. Sarah, thoughts about this?
3: Yeah, I think of it as big media or corporate media or white media. But, you know, mm-hmm. they're all kind of euphemisms, and language does matter. It really does matter. But if we don't have a common definition for what we're defining something as, then it means something different. To everyone who uses that word, so to me, mainstream is really white-dominated media
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for
3: white audiences. But that sounds too um, too caustic.
2: Wait, Brittany, can I ask you? I'm I'm just really I think that's a really great question. I'm just really curious about what your thinking is about this. Like, have you thought about different terms, or are you just is it just something that's like irking you? Or
1: yeah, I mean, I think about this all the time, especially because. I am also a commentator, right, on what I would characterize as a mainstream media news channel. And I'm always reminded that it is the work of those who profit from disinformation, whether they are financial, whether they have to do with power. But for those who profit from disinformation, it is always a strategy to bastardize common language, right, to take what we mean and flip it on its head, right? It's the same thing we've seen happen with woke. Woke was conversation that Black and brown folks had with each other. Black folks were saying to each other, stay alert, stay woke, pay attention, right, read between the lines, think critically. Mm -hmm. This is how we were communicating with one another. All of a sudden, when we were in mixed company and that word got used in front of other people, there were folks who profit from the disinformation sphere that said, let me turn this on its head, and use it to mean something else. Let me use it to mean wild or obnoxious or annoying or, you know, a progressive wing that has gone too far or those loony lefties or whatever they want to use it to mean today. And now Donald Trump can get behind a podium and say woke and the whole world knows he means something entirely different than what we in our community invented it to mean, right? And so I feel like mainstream media is is moving in the same way. And so I think this is also similar to the conversation we've been having around the word objectivity, right? So we know that objective for a very long time was actually a code word. And that code word meant seeing the world the way white men do. And if you came in with perspective that they considered too Black or too Latina or too LGBTQ or too disabled, that it wasn't objective enough, right? And then you, the journalist, the storyteller, you were too close to the story. And I'm curious for both of you all, how you have been intentionally combating that, right? What do other news organizations need to learn from the way that you all at Capital B and at URL have been flipping in a positive way, that idea of objectivity on its head and saying, no, actually there are multiple perspectives to share here. So we are in our third full week of publication, which is very exciting. And I think
2: about some feedback that we heard from one of our writers who'd come from a mainstream newsroom and said, you know, it was really great not to have to worry about how conservative readers might react to the word racist in my piece, right? And like that sort of thing is really part of the reason why we built Capital Bs, that we can just be bold and tell the truth and be able to say that things are objectively racist, Mm -hmm. We don't have time to engage in conversations about whether or not we should call things racist because the country's on fire. And so we need to be able to say very plainly what's wrong and not act like doing so is some sort of breach of journalistic uh, credibility.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I think that the common theme, the common thread in terms of all of the organizations that are in the network, is that we're all about serving our audiences. It's all about like, what is your community struggling with? Which is very different from, you know, big media, mainstream media, whatever we want to call it, because there's always been this distance. And the distance is what makes it journalism. That's the quote unquote objectivity Mm -hmm. is by being outside of the community, outside of the issue. And so like me, when people ask me this question and I talk about Word... I feel like we are proudly in the vein of in and a part of the legacy of the original black media makers back to 1827 when Freedom's Journal was started. Mm. It was about advocating for the humanity of black people. Period. You know, like like black folks were seen as chattel, they were seen as animals, all that. And we're still seen as animals, you know, sadly. We're still not seen as fully human. And so I feel like. My role at Word is the exact same role that we've been playing since Ida B. Wells in the late 1800s and everybody along the way who has been invested in telling the stories and and advocating on behalf of Black people's full humanity. And so I see the role of Word and the role that URL is filling is really trying to bring a different approach to journalism that actually Mm -hmm. makes a difference in people's day-to-day lives.
1: Before I let both of you go, we at Undistracted know that starting a new platform, let alone a new business, is really, really difficult. And I'm just so inspired by both of your examples and your tenacity, right, that this wasn't just an idea in the moment of frustration, but you actually went through and um, have materialized this thing. So I'm curious, Sakoto, on your profile for capital B, you say you believe in a strong work-life balance between the hours of nine to five, and you don't suffer fools. How does that mindset keep you going?
2: Sorry, I'm really curious about your thoughts on this, particularly since you've been an entrepreneur for so long. But this is my first go around it, starting something new, building something from the ground up. And the kind of stress that I had in my previous role is just very different from the kind of stress that I have now. Working toward a dream or something you believe in, even when you're like, you know, working on a Saturday or trying to solve a problem, there's something energizing about it and it's not depleting. However, (laughs) I do know, (laughs) I do know and I am very conscious of, you know, we built Capital B at a time where Black journalists were complaining about all the things they were dealing with in their newsrooms and there was just no way... That we could build Capital B without thinking very seriously, not just about the editorial, not just about the business, but also about the culture we were building. But also we make we tell people that like Capital B is a team. It is not a family. You have a family. <laughs> this. this is something that Lauren says all the time, but they need you to be well and <laughs> you need to be well for them. And we need you to be well, too, because huh. the work is important. That sort of mix of things is, is very much part of what Lauren and I try to model as leaders.
1: Mm, I hear that. I hear that, Sarah. I'm interested in your thoughts, really, about the future of what this whole conversation about media looks like. Right? You wrote this line that I absolutely love. You said, "We cannot get weary. This is our time. Let's go to work." What do you hope that work looks like um, moving forward?
3: I mean, I think it looks like you know what Akoto and Lauren are doing. It looks like what me and Mitra are doing. I feel really strongly that we have to hold all of these stakeholders accountable. Just because you woke up in 2020 and said, oh, wow, we need to write some checks and we need to do things differently. It doesn't start at 2020. This goes back 400 plus years. Mm-hmm. So there's a deep, deep hole that we got to dig out of. So to me, what the future looks like is more resources. Yeah. I'm grateful that there are more Dollars flowing to black and brown organizations, mm-hmm. but it needs to be expedited. There needs to be more, and it needs to be faster.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, I had many, 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 many sleepless nights not knowing if I was going to be able to make payroll.
0: Mm.
3: I mean, talk about stress. Not with URL, URL is doing great, but with Word, and I hope, Akoto, you never have to experience this, but it is a horrible feeling for it to be Monday and payroll is Thursday and you have absolutely no idea how you're going to make payroll. Mm -hmm. And a whole bunch of people are relying on you to pay their rent, to feed their kids, all that stuff. The ancestors, God, whatever, came through and I figured it out. Yeah, I never missed a payroll, never missed a payroll, but it's a horrible, horrible feeling. Mm -hmm. And too many of our black organizations and businesses and media entities are living that reality still. Mm-hmm. And that's unacceptable. And so the only way the future is bright is if the checks keep coming and the centering and prioritization of black and brown people, businesses, entities continues to be the priority.
1: Well. Wow. I'm so grateful to both of you for making us a priority. I know that we are all better for it. Um, and I'm looking so forward to the stories you all will continue to tell. Thank you both so much for everything you do. And thanks for spending time with us. Thank you. Thank you so much, Brittany. This was great. Thank you. Akoto Aforiata is co-founder of Capital B and Sarah lomax Reese is the co-founder of URL Media. After all this conversation, here's what I find most telling. It is the women, especially the women of color, standing in the gap as media undergoes its own revolution. We are the ones building new platforms, holding the larger than life accountable, giving the old way the boot, and blazing the newer, harder trails. Because in this world where there is little delineation between news, entertainment, and culture, somebody has gotta stand for truth. Now if it's up to me, I'm almost always gonna leave that to a woman. Whatever future the media will see, it will be because the storytellers designed it now and the consumers held the standard. In the end, whatever we become, it is up to us. That's it for today, but never ever for tomorrow. Undistracted is a production of The Meteor and Pineapple Street Studios. Our lead producer is Rachel Ward. Our associate producer is Alexis Moore. Thanks also to Treasure Brooks and Hannes Brown. Our executive producers at The Meteor are Cindy Levy and myself, and our executive producers at Pineapple are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. You can follow me at Miss Pacchetti on all social media and our team at The Meteor. Subscribe to Undistracted and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you check out your favorite podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being. Thanks for doing. I'm Brittany Packnett Cunningham. Let's go get free.